This is Nick Wright with Managing Editor Zachary Fillingham of geopoliticalmonitor.com. And today we're going to be talking about the rise of Japan's maritime self-defense and its naval buildup and what that means not only for Japan, but the region and the world. Uh, so, Zach, um, maybe you could start off by giving us a little bit of history about Japan's military, its pacifist constitution, how that came to be, and how things have been changing in recent times. Okay, so um, obviously we're all aware of uh, general history of World War II, um, and Japan's modern military posture is informed by those historical events. Um, Japan throughout the course of World War II, uh, waged an aggressive campaign in the region um, and and its actions, the actions of the Japanese military uh, at the time, the Empire of Japan at that time, imp- inf- still influenced re- um, relations in East Asia to this day, particularly between Japan and South Korea and China. Um, so a lasting institutional legacy of the war is the post-war pacifist constitution, which essentially was written by the United States and adopted by Japan. And a unique characteristic of that constitution is that um, it eschews warfare as a tool of diplomacy. So basically, it accepts that... Um, uh, warfare cannot be used in international relations. And in practical terms, that limits the, um, the size of the Japanese military and also the scope of the Japanese military. It, it gears it towards a strictly defensive posture um, and it avoids the sort of conventional offensive capabilities that we see throughout the world in, in most conventional quote-unquote normal militaries. Um, so this has basically been <clears throat> uh, the Japanese military doctrine for a long time now. It's and it, it's uh, it should be stressed that it's also very popular politically within Japan. Uh, a lot of people are proud of the pacifist constitution and and they um, do not <clears throat> respond positively to the idea of, of revoking it or, or amending the constitution along more conventional lines. So that having been said, uh, we now have a particularly long rule of Prime Minister Shinzo Abe uh, of the LDP, who from the very beginning, one of his, um, you could say his political goals has been to, well, originally it was thought he was going to out and out amend the constitution and some of the majorities uh, in both houses of parliament that his party has enjoyed um, allowed for that possibility it looked like at times that he had the um, the numbers needed to do it um, which I think would require um, if memory serves correctly it requires a a large majority in both houses and a up and down public referendum. Um, however, the reason why we haven't seen that happen so far is probably that last step, the up and down public referendum. As I alluded to before, uh, it's never really been a, a super popular proposition to get rid of the pacifist clause. And that might be why we haven't seen um, a push for that um, to happen yet. Now. That having been said, 
um, instead of this direct approach towards amending the Constitution, Prime Minister Abe seems to have adopted the strategy of, of chipping away at the pacifist clause and what it has meant for Japanese military doctrine. Um, and this, <clears throat> this can be seen in um, specifically uh, an effort in 2014 to reinterpret um, basically the legal definition of self-defense to include uh, the self-defense of a key ally in the event of Japan's national survival. So basically, for the first time ever, it would allow the um, self-defense forces to be deployed in the event a ally, obviously in this case the United States, was attacked. Um, so that, that was one step uh, away from the pacifist clause. It allowed... Um, for example, it allowed for Japanese helicopters to land on U.S. Navy aircraft carriers. Um, and another more recent one is the uh, some of the some of the more um, like the latest five-year naval plan, military plan, which I'll get into in a bit. And could you flesh that out a little bit more? What are some examples of things that Japan can and cannot do based on the current wording of the Constitution? Well, I mean, um, it cannot spend more than 1% of its GDP on defense, for example. Um, it, uh, <clears throat> it cannot have offensive capabilities. So, um, okay, so I'll, I'll just get into this right now. So basically, an offensive capability would be an aircraft carrier, obviously, correct, right? Like the aircraft carrier is to propel your military capability far beyond your shores and, and park it at basically next to another country. Um, it's a it's forward offensive power projection. So the, um, the maritime self-defense forces to this point has operated like sort of gray area helicopter destroyers slash carriers, which um, operates uh, in and around the waters of Japan but they also could, you know, hypothetically have that dual role of offensive uh, power projection. And that gray area is shrinking lately because within the last five year um, military plan, um, it includes uh, modernization and refitting of a few of these uh, helicopter aircraft carriers, the Izumo class, um, and and to, to make the flight deck able to... to um, launch American F-35 fighter jets. So basically, it would turn a helicopter destroyer into a conventional aircraft carrier. Um, and this is another way that you see uh, Prime Minister Abe slowly chipping away at that pacifist clause. He hasn't come at it head on. He's coming at it obliquely, and he's trying to is trying to get around it without, you know, um, suffering the potential political blowback of of saying no, we're no longer a pacifist state. Um, another example would be <clears throat> obviously offensive missiles. Um, although most Japanese destroyers can can hypothetically equip uh, American Tomahawk missiles, they don't because those missiles would be. Um, uh, obviously, they would be launched from boat to a land target, and it, it's it's considered an offensive capability. Um, this is another sort of gray area legal zone uh, where the Abe government has challenged the conventional interpretation of the pacifist clause 
because um, uh, Abe's lawyers would argue that sometimes you need, sometimes that offensive capability, a sea-based missile targeting a land-based target, uh, is is in fact a defensive capability in sen- in the sense that you are removing p- missile batteries that are potentially uh, pointed at Japan, um, and and an example they would point to is North Korea. Now North Korea is another mili- is is a military threat that has definitely assisted Abe's lawyers and and boosters in their argument that. Um, you know, a, a real defense requires some level of offense because you have this military threat emanating from North Korea um, and, and demonstrated in a very real way at the height of these recent tensions between the two countries before the, um, the Trump diplomacy. And for our listeners, uh, can you elaborate a little bit on those recent tensions? Sorry, could you repeat? Can you elaborate a little bit on those recent tensions? Between oh, oh just you, you know, like um, I think it was it was two years ago before the um, before this uh, diplomatic initiative uh, launched by Trump. It was the Rocket Man phase of you know a, was a Rocket Man v Dullard, where uh, or Dotard, sorry, <laughs> um, where there was basically a series of escalations between the United States and North Korea. And as a side, like like those escalations impact Japan's defense in a very real way, right? Those missile launches were, were flying over Japanese territory. And um, like the sort of immediate, like American defense planners can um, hypothetically run through uh, scenarios where you know, North Korean ICBMs hit the West Coast. But at this point in time, at least, it's very unlikely. The technology is, although uh, it's obviously there now, it's still not, you know, tested, refined. Um, it, it's more of a intangible threat at this point. But for Japan, the threat is very tangible. It's within range of short-term, uh, short-range missiles, uh, missiles that are very difficult to intercept. And... Um, you know, this, like, as a direct consequence of this this spike in tensions two years ago, which sort of underscored the continuing presence of the North Korea threat, we see uh, within the latest military budget uh, a large app- uh, appropriation to, to buy a new land-based Aegis anti-missile system, which is definitely a direct result of the North Korea threat. Now, even if uh, there's an intention with the current Japanese government to increase its offensive capabilities and to expand its military power, will it be limited by the 1% uh, spending cap? Um, Yeah, it will. Um, And we might, you know, in the future see an attempt to get around that. Um, But I think that's just, at at this point, that's par for the course. Um, They are, you know... They're doing everything they can. The, the, the budget is, is increasing in absolute terms as the Japanese economy increases in absolute terms. You know, this, this year's budget's the largest ever. Um, I don't know what they are right now in terms of GDP, but, uh, or in terms of their percentage where they're at, but in, in absolute terms, they're at $47 billion, 
um, for the year ahead. And just just uh, by way of comparison, the United States comes in at about six or seven hundred and sixty billion. Obviously, massive uh, amount of money going into defense, and China comes in at one hundred and seventy billion. Um, and that figure is the official figure, which is often uh, doubted as the the uh, as including all of the money that goes into defense spending uh, in China. In a previous podcast, uh, we talked about China's increased uh, naval fleet and military budget, especially in relation to the region in the South China Sea. Uh, how much of Japan's uh, desire to increase its naval fleet is in direct response to Chinese increases in its naval power? Well, I could say, like broadly speaking, there's probably uh, four four things contributing to this like um, this desire on the part of the Japanese government to increase its military and specifically naval um, capabilities. The first one is increasing uh, military expenditures in China. Um, <clears throat> so and we touched down on this in, in the previous podcast on China, on the PLA Navy as well. Basically, um, historically speaking, the last couple decades, uh, the the U.S. alliance of of the United States and Japan has been sort of un- the unrivaled naval power in in East Asia, both both in terms of quality and quantity, and the China's rapid naval modernization and its uh, commiserate increases in military spending have definitely. Um, rocked the boat, and there's the the Japanese government is seeking to respond to some of these new capabilities that they're seeing in China. Um, the second one would be, as as I alluded to before, Abe's personal beliefs and his uh, his uh, longstanding desire to normalize Japan as a regular actor in the international system. I think that he. He doesn't, I mean, this is purely my opinion, but he doesn't appear to be someone who buys into the um, sort of post-World War II uh, conceptualization of Japan as a pacifist actor. I think he's trying to escape from that, and part of that is to increase Japan's military capabilities. Um, I think he sees these military capabilities as sort of um, owing to, you know, the... Oh, something that's owed to a country that is as economically powerful as Japan. It should have a sort of commiserately powerful military. A third factor would be North Korea, which we just talked about. <clears throat> and a fourth, a fourth factor would be, um, and this is a kind of interesting one, trade, trade pressures with the United States. At this current point in time, obviously we know from um, what we're seeing in the Trump administration, uh, the United States is heaping trade pressures on on many of its allies and uh the the japanese economy obviously very dependent on the united states as an export market um we saw the we saw japan almost agree to the tpp with the united states but the tpp the trans-pacific partnership sorry but the tpp was uh was torn up as one of president trump's first acts in office so Tokyo has been incredibly sensitive towards the possibility of Japan being targeted in a trade war. And um, one of the ways to mitigate this threat uh, is to just basically up purchases of 
uh, U.S. military equipment. So this serves two goals. Basically, it increases the capabilities, which is in line with Abe's personal beliefs in terms of the Japanese military. And it also <clears throat> uh, decreases the trade imbalance between Japan and the United States, which, as we know, is a metric that President Trump closely watches when he uh, designs his global trade strategy. Interesting. And uh, can you talk a little bit about the constitution of the Japanese uh, fleet uh, and whether or not that's anticipated change, and if so, how? Okay, so basically, um, <clears throat> yeah, so actually you were talking about uh, the budgetary. Um, one of the one of the ways I guess that uh, the budget is um, that one percent cap is is cooked is that I mean Japan's obviously uh, an island right uh, island nation several islands the main islands and then um, Hokkaido Kyushu and Okinawa so most of its defense is sea based and. Um, so part of this is the Coast Guard, which actually, and, and you know, this episode, as always, it's re in reference to an article that's been posted on geopoliticalmonitor.com. And in the article, you'll find uh, a more specific and exhaustive breakdown of, of the fleet itself. But in general... The name of that article for our listeners is Backgrounder, Japan's Maritime Self-Defense Force, Naval Buildup on yeah. geopoliticalmonitor.com. And um, so, so basically, to achieve this uh, capacity to protect Japan's sort of sweeping archipelago, um, uh, it relies heavily on the Coast Guard. Um, so Japan's Coast Guard is, is, in relative terms, a lot bigger than, than you, most countries' Coast Guard. And um, in a qualitative sense, like some, sometimes it's hard to differentiate between the Coast Guard capacity and the MS, the Maritime Self-Defense Force, which is the Navy capacity. Um, Japan's Coast Guard has 131 patrol vessels uh, and 14 large um, helicopter-capable vessels, and then another 48 large patrol vessels. Um, and then when you when you include all of the the smaller auxiliary ships together with these, it comes to about four hundred and fifty five ships, which is not insubstantial. Like that is uh, that's before we even start discussing the uh, MSDF, uh, which itself <clears throat> has uh, is is heavily concentrated in destroyers. It has about fifty four, and most of these are. Um, relatively advanced uh, they, they have Aegis systems anti-ballistic missiles and um, Japan's actually Japan's anti-submarine technology is pretty well regarded as as we we discussed in the previous podcast there was an incident around the Senkaku Islands where one of Ch China's uh, newest subs was detected and forced to surface by um, the MSDF so um, yeah and um it has 22 subs. All of them are diesel propelled, and um, it's going through the process of uh, updating the older models with the newest Soryu class. And it operates four helicopter destroyers, or sorry, four helicopter carriers. Two of them are kind of more on the destroyer side, two of them are more on the carrier side, and the two that are more on the carrier side are called the Izumo class. These are the two that we were talking about before that will be um, uh, sort of retrofitted to take the F-35s. 
And more broadly speaking, uh, the transition away from a strictly defensive capacity, uh, although without amending the Constitution, and the technological advancement and possible expansion of Japan's military capacity and also its naval fleet, what impact is that likely to have uh, on the region? And internationally, uh, if there are international impacts beyond the relationship with the United States uh, and their uh, potential for trade disputes. Well, I think it's always, um, <clears throat> I mean, when Japan is, uh, you know, that consideration about the trade war that I was talking about before, my presumption would be that they view it as a short-term consideration. Um, they're probably hoping that this sort of threat will will not outlive the Trump administration, that they won't be having to, to buy U.S. equipment um, you know, every couple of years just to avoid a unilateral declaration of trade war from the United States. But um, so that they they presumably hope is temporary. Um, and then in a wider sense, you, you might consider, again, there's, there's obviously an element of personal belief in Abe, but there's also an element in the fact that, uh, you know, this is sort of conventional balancing behavior to, uh, toward the rise of China. Um, you know, China, for example, rose, increased its, uh, its defense budget, budget by 7.5% last, uh, for this, this coming year. And, um, <clears throat> although its official numbers put its GDP at about, or its military spending to GDP at about 1.3%, uh, CIPRI estimates it at around 2%. Uh, as I said before, there's always a bit of a gap between the official and unofficial military spending numbers in China. So <clears throat> um, when we're talking about this stuff, we got to talk about sort of conventional real realpolitik threat perceptions. Um, obviously, Japan, in a broad sense, uh, sees a modernizing, rising China and um, views it as a potential military threat. Um, it also needs to... <clears throat> It also needs to improve its own capabilities and, and increase its own spending to appease uh, the, you know, Washington, especially under Trump, which has sort of um, increased the importance of allies, quote unquote, spending their fair share. But as far as the um, as far as the actual threat of other countries, obviously, because when you have a conventional arms race. It's always a sort of closed feedback loop of feeling threatened, increasing capabilities, and then causing other countries to feel threatened, which, you know, obviously increases, increases. But um, I don't know, I, like, obviously, China does not want to see um, uh, increased qualitative and quantitative advances from the Japanese military because it ties it into um, a potential conflict with the United States. And we talked about a few hypothetical scenarios uh, in the previous podcast. But as far as like Jap as far as Japan modernizing, and, and I think that that is the actual cal calculation here. Um, but in terms of Japan modernizing, expanding its military cap capacity and, and becoming an offensive force, uh, as it did in World War Two, something like that, I, I don't think that, that that's a credible threat. Um, I don't think that other East Asian and uh, you know Southeast Asian government governments take that as a credible threat. 
However, there is definitely uh, an important historical legacy that plays politically in all of these countries. Um, a lot of there, there's a widespread perception that Japan is not um, hasn't displayed sufficient contrition for its its role in World War II, and, and you know there's a periodic or periodic you know scandals about Japanese textbooks and, and how it teaches the legacy of World War II in Japan. Um, you know whether or not it has apologized for comfort women, um, which is obviously a huge thorn in the side of Japanese and South Korean relations. So basically, I mean, I mean this this stuff is politically important for the region. Um, the expansion of Japanese military power is politically important, and it becomes an issue in all of these countries. And it might it might uh, in doing so impact have a. Uh, a negative impact on relations with Japan, but in terms of um, sort of uh, hard power calculations of, of feeling threatened by uh, a new Japanese invasion or, or anything like that, or Japanese coercion using its uh, military capacity for coercive uh, gain, I don't think that that's, a, that's seriously considered. Very interesting. Well, thank you so much, Zach, for discussing Japan and its increase in its naval force and uh, military uh, plans and expansion. Uh, to our listeners, you can check out the article uh, that our discussion is based on. Again, that's Backgrounder of Japan's Maritime Self-Defense Force Naval Buildup, and you can find that on geopoliticalmonitor.com. So thank you all for listening, and looking forward to next time.